Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Out with Susie Ruffle. This is episode four. If you haven't listened to one, two, and three, maybe have a listen after you've finished this. Uh, Three interviews with three brilliant guests. I really enjoyed it, and it seems that lots of people are are enjoying them as well. I've been delighted by how many of you have got in touch um, via Twitter or messages or by rating on iTunes. Thanks for that. It's super helpful um, to say that you're loving the show. Uh, We were also in The Observer and The Guardian as podcast of the week, uh, which I was completely chuffed about. Um, it's, it's quite strange when you put out something new, um, not strange. It makes you feel quite vulnerable when you put something new out into the world that you've spent quite a lot of time cooking up and doing lots of reading and doing lots of researching of the guests and putting it out there in the world. I was so hopeful that people would really connect with it. And it seems that lots of you are. And so thank you for that. Uh, here we are week five of lockdown. I'd say my banana bread is an eight out of 10. Um, and I'm now getting into running. I say I'm getting into running. I'm not enjoying it. I'm pushing myself to run a few times a week, uh, but it seems to be really helping my mental health. And a few of you have got in touch say that you're listening to me when you're running, so maybe you're doing your, your allowed exercise right now. Lots of people have been getting in touch with me to share their stories, and I have loved receiving them. If you would like to send in some correspondence to the show, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. And the Twitter handle is out with Susie. As always, at the top of the show, I'm going to share a story from a listener. And I thought I'd share this one from Mike because at the top of the email, he mentions that he's a fan of Like Minded Friends, which is a podcast I do with this week's guest, the brilliant Tom Allen. Dear Susie, I'm a gay man in my 60s and have lived happily with my partner for nearly 25 years now. And I've seen some aspects of the world change beyond all recognition as far as attitudes towards LGBT people go. But I still find I need the comfort and encouragement I'm hearing from your stories, the stories of the people you interview and the people who write in. I started coming out when I was still at school to a succession of boys who gave me the I'm flattered but I'm not like that response. And I've been doing it on and off ever since. I came out to my friends in my 20s, my family in my 30s, at work after that, and it just goes on and on and on. As recently as February this year, I found myself at a violin festival in Belgium having to spell out explicitly that my partner is a man. Quite a few of you have got in touch to say that coming out isn't just something you do once, and it's really important to highlight that on the show. It's something that, you know, every time we meet someone new, we we have to tell them that little thing about ourselves. Um, And so thanks for sending that in, Mike. You also say some very kind stuff about how much you're enjoying the podcast and that you that you've enjoyed my my comedy. Um, He said that he loves it when people who are LGBT, uh, he sees them doing well. He gets the same kind of pride he'd see from someone in his family doing well, which, uh, yeah, that made me feel very special. So thank you for saying that, Mike. 
I've also received some emails this week, which I'm not going to read out, but I, I do want to talk about a little bit from people who haven't yet or can't come out to say that this podcast is sort of part of their journey and that hearing from some successful LGBTQ plus people is really helping. And what I wanted to say really is that I just feel really privileged that I get to share these stories. I actually received a DM this week from someone who lives in a country where being gay is yet to be decriminalised. And he told me how much he's enjoying the podcast and that it's making him feel part of a community. I don't mind telling you guys, that made me cry. Um, but I just want him to know if he is listening, you are very much part of this community. Um, even if you can't do it out loud yet, uh, you are very much part of this. I've also been delighted by the amount of people that have listened and got in touch who aren't from the queer community. I always wanted this to be enjoyable and interesting to everyone and it's always great to hear from allies. Okay, on with the show. Tom Allen is an excellent stand-up comic, but he is an even better friend. We met around a decade ago. We both had an awful gig at a charity night. I followed a raffle and Tom followed a drag queen. Neither an ideal opener for stand-up comedy. We both stuck around, had a few drinks and a new friendship blossomed. We've spent years on the comedy scene together, lived together at the Edinburgh Festival, toured the UK together and even travelled to New York to World Pride. I was quite nervous about interviewing such a dear friend, but I shouldn't have been. It was lovely. I really hope you enjoy this chat. So this week's guest is a stand-up comedian, actor, writer. You may have seen him on Live at the Apollo, The Last Leg. He is the host of The Apprentice You're Fired, series regular on the Bake Off spin-off show, Extra Slice, and is a hugely successful and brilliantly funny stand-up comedian. Indeed, the press have said that he gives the tradition of camp comedy a firmly 21st century twist. He's a master of cheeky stand-up, riotous stuff perfectly delivered, wit as sharp as his fashion sense. And one of the funniest acts on the circuit, he continues to storm every gig he does. It is the wonderful Tom Allen. Hello, Tom. Oh, my goodness. I've never had such uh, such positivity thrown at me. Thank you very much. Uh, what a lovely introduction. I, I don't know what to say. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much. Now, um, you're the first person that I've... I, I've interviewed a few people so far, but you're the first person I'm interviewing who's a really good friend of mine. Oh. So it's felt strange, sort of, for the last sort of couple of days, I've been researching you. <laughs> oh, which, gosh. What have you found? Well, I've been reading, like, articles that you wrote years ago and just saying <laughs> across things that you've been up to. I didn't know that you'd done a radio series for Doctor Who. Yes. I mean, that's yes. not come up in our years of friendship. <laughs> and it maybe not? it should have. I don't think it has. I got asked to do those, yeah, years ago. And um, they, they were really fun. Somebody who I knew because she'd taken my photograph once for as an actor when I thought I wanted to be an actor. And um, she was directing these uh, audio series for Doctor Who and she said, would you like to come and do one? So I did. Here's the big question. Do you still occasionally get a check in the post from them? Um, I think I have sometimes got something in the region of £6.99 oh. uh, across a three-year period. That'll keep you in suits. So that is what I've been living off, which has been <laughs> great. <laughs> Now, for listeners that don't know you as well as me, which is 
probably most people that are listening. Uh, you grew up in <laughs> Bromley. That's right, in Bromley, in Zone 5 of London. In Zone 5. Could you explain Bromley to maybe our listeners that are from overseas or that don't know the outskirts of London? It is, well, I always describe it as the place where David Bowie grew up and developed his style. And that suggests it's a very flamboyant, fabulous place. It's actually the epitome of suburban, leafy, slower-paced life. And there are many, as I've got older, I'm 36 now, as I've got older, I've realised that that is, there are many great things about that. And a calm, peaceful life is a lovely thing. But it is very much the heart of conservative with both small and large seas. Right. Uh, conservative ways of being. And it's just, it's very quiet in every way. And I think that is the best way I can describe it, really. It's, it's nice in so many ways, but it is ultimately very quiet. And how did you find that when you were growing up? Did it feel like you were being sort of trapped by it or did you quite enjoy the, the quietness of the landscape around you? I think it's an impossible sort of push and pull you have as a, as a kid, really, that you know this is your place of safety and, and security and this is where the, your caregivers live. So you mm -hmm. naturally love that. But ultimately, I think I felt a, a great sense of, I think there's something else happening somewhere. And um, my family, God love them, are not the sort of people to host a party. Uh, for example, I remember going to New Year's Eve parties and my parents would leave. We would leave before midnight. Um, <laughs> so it was always... I remember hearing the din of other people's parties happening and I remember it would ring in my ears, the, the quietness of, of our house, really. It always felt very quiet and um, like the party was somewhere, somewhere else. And like I say, not that there was anything, not that there was anything wrong with that. That was just the way my parents were, but it was very quiet and I was not always that quiet and not always that good at, at being neutral or just being chill. And sometimes I found it very difficult to make my own fun. And I sort of, I think that's when I sort of started creating worlds in my head and stuff. Is that, and do you think, did that happen from sort of quite a young child? Did you, is, is that what sort of child you were? Were you often sort of somewhere else? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I always wanted to be in another I always wanted to be, yeah, some, somewhere else somehow and, and maybe a different person altogether. And I always enjoyed playing imagination games. And I, I always felt safer playing on my own, actually, because I was always scared of, of being rejected by the other kids, which sounds so needy, doesn't it? Oh, but I think I can totally relate to that. Yeah? And, and also being four, but also being 34. Yeah. <laughs> being right. like... Right. Well, I've yeah. got, I, I, I'm coming to the party, but what about if no one wants to talk to me? Absolutely. Yeah, we're still, I mean, I still think I am my three, four-year-old self. I, I, I remember, yeah, vividly, there were some kids on the corner who um, wanted to play. And then all of a sudden they decided they didn't want to play. And so they would block me out and ignore me. And, um, and it meant all the other kids turned against me, which is so, like, I must have been so needy or something that made them do that. Or, or just so nervous, I guess. I, I don't know. I, I guess I still, if I'm honest, I still have that. I still carry that with me now. And it was repeated at primary school, especially that feeling of, I don't like you. <laughs> I don't want to be your friend. And I know that sounds so sounds so weird to a lot of people. And go, well, you're just a kid. Do people kids say this stuff all the time? But I took it very personally. And I always felt like I was, I always felt like I was an adult. I felt like I was, I'm 36 now. I felt like I was 36 then. I always felt like I took it very personally. And I always thought, oh, well, this is not right. So I think that's when I started to kind of be in my own world a bit more, which felt safer. And did you always feel like a sense of otherness? Yes. I always knew that I was different and I always, I didn't know the word for it, but I think I always knew that I was, that I was gay, actually, if mm. I'm honest. It's, it sounds strange, perhaps, to go, what, you were four and you knew you were gay? And I was like, yeah. In, in Dustin's episode, he mentioned that he was very young 
when he right, knew yeah. that he wasn't straight. I think a lot of us do, don't we? And mm. I think I just knew I was, and I knew I fancied boys and I had crushes on them. And did you want to play with the boy? Like, did you want to sort of, or we, was, was playing with them almost sort of too much for your brain to deal with? It was almost too much for my brain mm. to deal with it. I was so, I think, you know, I was kind of in love with them in some way. Uh, in a way that they were, it was not reciprocated. And I had no way of expressing that or kind of talking about that or, you know, normalizing that really for myself. So I just felt weird. And I guess that probably was what I was showing on my face. And that's probably why the other kids didn't like me. I realized that years later when I thought about sort of being bullied at school and I thought, well, was I, was I as badly bullied as I thought I was? Or was I just carrying all this weight about my sexuality with me? So that the slightest dismissal from someone actually felt like they'd seen this secret about me and I should feel immense shame about it. And I created into this huge thing in my head that everyone hated me because I was sort of hiding this, this secret. I wonder, I wonder if I was similar then. Yeah, maybe. And did that carry on into, so you went to, was it Cooper's that you went to as your secondary school? That was my secondary school, yeah, in Bromley, a comprehensive mixed school. And so um, when I think of, because uh, because I've heard you doing material about your school and indeed you've told me about your sort of school life, was it mm. sort of a massive sort of traditional comprehensive school that was built in like sort of the 60s or the 70s? Like what did it look yes, like? Exactly like that. It was, I mean, now it would be quite sort of Mad Men-esque and quite <laughs> sort of fabulous, you know, lots of big windows and mm. and kind of a combination of, you know, brutalist brick and concrete work combined with wood. I mean, probably quite lovely when it was built, but it felt very much when I went there at age, obviously 11, it felt like I was serving a prison sentence. I was so terrified. I was so terrified. The main thing I'd fixated on was being made to go in it was all these stories of being made to shower with other boys after PE I was so scared of taking my clothes off and it wasn't because I was scared of being aroused or something it was just scared of that I think it's just a vulnerability when you take your clothes off I was so terrified of it and I was I was fixated on that I was fixated on being bullied by other children I was just so scared all the time. And I, I, I think it, just leading up to it was so frightening for me. And then when I got there, it was still frightening, but it was better than I expected. That was a huge relief because I realized I could focus on my schoolwork and that's what the teachers wanted me to do. So I did that. And we didn't have to actually shower at our school. Um, they, that's uh, what they I was said, just about to ask. <laughs> they, um, they said, you do have to shower. And I was like, oh, I remember the meeting, the first PE lesson where they told us all this. And I was like, oh, God, oh, God. Um, And they said, but you can wear um, swimming trunks in the shower. So that was like a very thoughtful thing that they did at that point, clearly where they knew that kids were getting worked up about that, um, I guess. I know you were quite studious and you always liked doing your work. How visible do you think you were to the children around you? Were you someone that sort of managed to blend in or...? Well, I've, I've been writing about this a lot recently. Um, I've always had a different voice to other people. Like my, my parents are from London. My dad's from Penge and my mum's from Sydenham. And um, my dad at this point was a coach driver and my mum worked in the army and navy, which is not the military. It's actually a department store part of the House of Fraser. Now closed. And R.I.P. Um, R.I.P. Army and Navy. First floor fashions, right next to the wedding hats. Mum was on <laughs> Um, anyway, they, they have quite normal, really, quite normal London accents, I suppose. But I always had this voice that I sounded like really plummy and posh, which my mum loved and loved to thrust me in front of people to go, look, oh, listen to him talk. Oh, we don't know where we got him from. 
but I didn't, I, for some reason I had this voice. Did you choose to have it? Do you remember making a conscious effort to speak nicely? No, it, right. I couldn't help it. As soon as I started talking, I spoke differently to other people and I don't know why. And it was so difficult because I sounded posh, but I wasn't posh. So I didn't, I couldn't fit in with all the kids at school. And at the same time, I didn't, I wasn't posh. So I didn't have posh friends who sounded like that. So I was just sort of in this, again, sort of weird hinterland, I guess, of being not belonging anywhere. And I guess it just exacerbated, or maybe it was, it was part of the same thing of knowing I was gay and knowing I was different. And, and that I think made me stick out. And so as soon as I started in year seven, the kids in my form would be like, oh, bof, oh my God, you're such a bof. And they just call me bod as well, which I don't understand why they called me that, but that seemed to stick as well. And people would be like, all right, bod, bod, and like constantly kind of, you know, just sort of. What does that up. even mean? Do you know? Exactly. No one understood what it meant whenever I told them, like, what are they talking about, bod? Do you think someone once misheard boff and it just sort of stuck <laughs> probably. around? Probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and so I had no choice really but to try and kind of keep my pecker up and uh, just sort of be like, well, I'm just going to do my best. I'm just going to do my best at school. And I didn't let it put me off. I think I was at a crossroads where I could have gone, I'm going to try and assimilate and try and forget about how I was when I first started, or I can go in the other direction and just be, I suppose, as best I can. And that's what, so that's what I did. And I, I guess, you know, being good at school means you get supported by your teachers then. Mm-hmm. And that was a way of kind of having support. And, and through that, eventually people started to warm to me and I started to be funny as well a bit. Now, I was about to ask you, were you, yeah, humorous? Were you, were you making people laugh back then even? I think I was always regarded as funny by people, but sometimes by like teachers and stuff at primary school. My my mum's always had such a great sense of humour and she would always, we would always joke and laugh together. And that was such a big sort of way of us communicating. Um, And mum would always show me funny films or would tape like One Foot in the Grave, the sitcom or Spitting Image or the two Ronnies I was obsessed with. And so I was always kind of engaged with comedy as a kid. But um, sometimes I remember saying things and people would laugh. And I was like, I wasn't trying to be funny. I was just literally just saying some some anxiety I had. And they'd be like, such a funny boy. And did you, you dressed quite differently in your teenage years, didn't you? So you didn't, yeah. you didn't shy away from being different. <laughs> well, I really was always interested in tailoring. And then I always was interested in different eras, I guess. And I was always fascinated by like, what's that What's that piece of tailoring that that movie star was wearing in a 1930s film or in uh, Mary Poppins or in, you know, a period drama of some kind. And so I, I learned a lot about that. And I thought maybe... What, I'd would you go into... and get books on it? Would you go to the library and pick yeah, you'd up have books to go to the li- I mean, it's so, it's so strange. Predates it was... Google. Yeah, because Google now you can type in and go, I'm interested in this era. And you can learn about it all day long and you can find other people who are into the same thing. But back then it was just me on my own, sat on the floor in my bedroom. And I would go to Bromley Central Library. It was massive. It was so great. Um, the only noise that was allowed was that uh, uh, noise of the books being checked out. And you'd have to go and get books on costume and stuff. But there'd only be like one. There'd be like one book on that stuff. So you'd, I'd learn about that. And then I started to think, well, maybe I should try and dress like that. I think I think I believed in time travel and I just wanted to belong. <laughs> I thought maybe if I wear the clothes, I'll become, I'll, I don't know, I'll just disappear to a different era. I suppose I just wanted to escape myself. And I wanted to decorate my bedroom like it was like a Victorian bedroom. And I wanted to, I wanted to be somewhere else and I wanted to light candles but we lived in an in a 1960s built house that was not (laughs) it's not quirky and Victorian so it just sort of looked weird and um and then I remember trying to light some candles in my room my mom was like what are you doing you'll burn the house down was this around the same time that you were a member of the Noel Coward Society well that came about so when I started to kind of 
wear Victorian clothing a bit, I was encouraged to join the Noel Coward Society at around age 16 or so by a drama teacher I had out of school. And she said, maybe you should do that because um, I got into Noel Coward through music. I played the piano a bit, couldn't sing. And somebody said, why don't you do a Noel Coward song? We're doing a concert for old people at Bromley Central Library, actually. And I decided I would sing Mad Dogs of Englishmen to this group of sort of 70-year-olds in the library. And um, I bet they loved it. I'm sure they thought many things. Um, (laughs) no they were very sweet about it yeah and I was like 15 at the time and did you really did you really connect with Noel Coward did you think oh I'm like him I really loved him and worshipped him because I thought he was like you know so sophisticated and he created these worlds and he seemed to be riling against something he seemed to be going I'm going to be sophisticated and and my fabulous I mean fabulous gets used quite a lot as well but I'm going to be my distinct self and I'm going to create my plays and my stories about the things I think are important and he always seemed to be doing against a barrage of I suppose what must have been quite ferocious tabloid and Mm. and very right-wing thinking at that time and even though you know as I learned more about him he's not he wasn't the total kind of liberal or anything but he was to me a persona that represented outsiderness and he came from suburbia and he he just sort of did his thing and and I I really admired that and you know most people didn't know who I was talking about when I was at school but a few teachers did and thought that was quite endearing but I um I loved him and I slicked my slicked my hair back. And my family were like, why you got to slick your hair back like that? Oh, you look terrible. Oh, it looks <laughs> awful. I'm not being funny, but you look terrible. And I'd have brill cream on my hair and um, slick back in a side parting like Noel Coward. I mean, now it would be completely fine. Completely normal. Oh, it would be sort of celebrated now if a teenager did that. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, it's great. You must meet him. And to be fair, there were people who did think like that. But it was very... Um, yeah, my family were like, oh, have just like, not, just have a nice, just make yourself look your best, you know. Why do you got to slick yeah. right back up your hair? You look like an old man would have his hair like that, not you. You're supposed to be young. And of course, I wanted to be an old man. So I suppose that was this kind of, well, I guess, to be honest, I guess it was a, it was about this thing of being somebody else. And I think it was about desexualizing myself because I thought there's something scary if I go down that route of falling in love. And I have to cancel that. I have to block that down. So I have to try and pretend to be somebody else. And these, so I have to be like a, a grandfather, <laughs> weirdly, to desexualize, to cut, amputate it all off because I couldn't, I knew I wasn't allowed it. And any, any kind of step towards it always felt dangerous and, it, and would cause pain. And do you have like a distinct memory of your sort of first crush where you sort of thought, okay, well, he's, you know, he's beautiful or he's, there's something about that guy. Like where, you know, where you sort of like put them on a pedestal, like knowing you were different, but sort of confirming that. There are a few people. I remember having a crush on a boy when I was at nursery school. His name was Martin. I don't know. I'll name him. Um, And I remember being obsessed with him, but I didn't know why. But he wasn't obsessed with me. So that was the end of that. And you just followed him around, I suppose. Followed him around and just wanted to be near him in the kind of the okie-cokey or whatever game we were doing that day. (laughs) And then... Later on, I remember there was a, I remember one of the boys sat in his football kit uh, at the end of the day. They'd done some sort of football training for the football team. And I remember looking at him and going, oh, I like the idea of, I suddenly felt like, I, I, oh, I really, there's something filthy about this, but I love looking at this other boy in his shorts. <laughs> and um, he wasn't And how like, old do you think you were then? About nine. Oh, really? As young as that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, and I, I remember being like, bury that. That's not okay. And it felt very like absolute filth. You know, it felt like, yeah. what are you thinking? That's terrible. Um, but then latterly at secondary school, there were times when I, you know, there was a boy in our year called Paul. I, he knows that I had a crush on him. Um, 
And oh, the, like everybody loved him. I remember lying on my bed and like actually phys- physically feeling pain at how much I loved him. Like just sort of that oh. anguish, but and not being able to talk about it. And just but that feeling of like, I remember I'd be watching the television in my mum and dad's room because they'd be downstairs. And I'd be watching, I remember distinctly watching Delia Smith's Autumn Collection. And, and at that point you thought, I must be gay. <laughs> You know what? It's <laughs> in the film. It's so obvious. It's not even a scene where he has to come out. But to me, it was so like that would be my like. I was like, I don't want to do my homework. I want to watch Delia Smith. And I was like, just like ro- I remember rolling from side to side, feeling a physical pain about loving him so much. And then that sort of came. That sort of ebbed and flowed because it was such a long term thing. And then there was mm. another boy when I was a bit older who everybody fancied, but I just totally crushed on. And it was so, that was the first time it was really intense. And it was over a summer holiday. I remember I desperately wanted to like find a way to hang out with him. And I remember phoning him up and I was like, hey, how are you? And he's like, oh, I'm all right. I'm just, um, just with my cousins actually. I was like, oh, um, well, I wondered, um, do you want to like, I don't know, maybe do something, um, like go out and do something over the weekend? I don't know what. And he's like, oh, I can't, my, my cousins are here. And I was like, oh, well, maybe if you want, he's like, anyway, I've got to go, my cousins are here. And then just hung up and I was like, oh God. <sighs> how long do you think you carried that phone call in around with you? Well, from 16 to now. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. Just the 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think those first experiences are difficult. Everybody, I think, goes through them. But I don't know. I don't know. I think I've always had a propensity for (laughs) dwelling on the sad and maudlin. But I suppose it was a way of celebrating what was what was inescapable. You know, there was no way I could come out. So that's all like these kind of like strangulated kind of moments of sort of wanting to talk to him and 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 uh, buying his perfume CKB it's CKB huh. notice I call it perfume it's it was it was sure, actually a unisex sure. aftershave but like carrying around a, a sample of that CKB just to remind me of him I mean so, so like agonizingly like trying to torture myself but I remember that feeling as well of it was a summer holiday so there was no distraction and there was no way to see him at school so I just felt so you spend all day fantasizing about him. Yeah, it was torture. And it was so heavy and it really hung heavy on my brain, like a, like a concrete block on my brain. That's how it felt. Like I couldn't be like, hey, let's do stuff. Um, and that's when I really, I think, fell into being obsessed with Victorian clothing and also table settings and being a butler. I wanted to be a butler at that point. Again, I think I'd seen the film of Remains of the Day with Anthony Hopkins playing this kind of uh, asexual butler during the so, war. Yeah, just, that's for me. That's for me. I want to be in service of other people where I don't have to worry about myself. I don't want to have to deal with this kind of thing all the time. So I'd I'd save up money and buy <laughs> cutlery and stuff. And I'd try and like lay the table and mum would come back from the army and they'd go, oh, what you got all this out for? Don't start making a mess. Oh, it looks, oh, why you got all, oh. Every time I tried to do anything, <laughs> it always felt like go out and play. And I had no interest in going out to play. I think because I just couldn't because my my brain was just sort of in tied up in knots because I was anguishing about boys I fancied and and then also having to not only have that pain but then the shame pain on top that sort of put it in a box inside a box inside a box and that and that would be tiring. And a moment ago you said, uh, you know, it was it was unthinkable to come out. Mm. When did that coming out period begin? So I didn't know if I wanted to go to university. My family did. My parents loved it that my history teacher thought I should apply for um, Oxford or Cambridge, which I did because uh, I liked history and I spoke posh and I thought this will be my exit way. I worked really hard. I got to the interview. I failed it massively. 
<laughs> so that knocked the wind out of myself. And I thought, well, maybe I don't want to go to university anyway. And that sounds it's so arrogant, isn't it? To go, well, if I can't go to Oxbridge, then I'm not going to bother. No, but I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's also, I think, have sympathy for yourself. Because I think that's a very normal reaction to a 17, 18-year-old to go, I can't do it, then I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. No, I don't want to do it. I didn't even <laughs> want to do it in the first place. It's fine. I don't want, I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that was what happened a bit. And then... Um, a teacher of mine recommended I join the National Youth Theatre. Yes. And I was 18 when I did that. And I was a bit older. I was ready for something new. They, Ed Wilson, who ran it at that time, was new, understood about eccentric young people. And he let me into the company. And that really, it meant, meant I got to do a course in the summer holidays after I finished um, my A-levels. And it meant that I suddenly had a bit of that experience of university. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, stay away. I was too scared to stay away in the halls of residence they used. But I did a three-week course and suddenly I was around other people I'd never met before. And they were all in, we were all enthusiastic about theatre. And, and we were all just enthusiastic young people who'd been outsiders at our school. And it was lovely. So and did you, lovely. And it's so reassuring, isn't it, to meet people and go... Oh, there's others that are. Yeah. Oh, okay. You were the you were the oddball in your school. Yes. You yes. were the one that didn't fit in there. Yes, and and they were. It wasn't like a shag fest. I think other people. Well, maybe it was for other people again. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a pattern. But I fell for this ginger-haired guy called Simon, and mm -hmm. in my group, and I don't know what it was. I just again, you just don't know what it is, but you just fancy no. someone this gingerhead guy from Exeter and he was um, just smiley and just open and had these big eyes and was just, and you just, I just fell for him, but he wasn't gay and he seemed gay, but he wasn't gay. He was just nice and open and not like the straight boys at my school. And um, he was a really nice guy. And after I finished the course, I felt such, so bereft and so kind of um, sad. And I cried for the first time since I'd been a child after that, that evening when I'd said goodbye. Like, cry And I was like, what is this shaking in my torso? I cried in the mirror. I don't, I think that's a very narcissistic thing to do. Um, <laughs> very dramatic. I know that I've done that. Exactly. I mean, you know, hello. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I told Simon I'm gay. And he went, and was the first, I said, you're the first person I've ever told. And we were walking down Charing Cross Road. And I'd, we were going somewhere and he was like, oh, I'd forgotten about this. God, I'd forgotten about this. Um, and walking down, and I was like, I, um, I just wanted to tell you and um, I just need to know that I'm, and it sounds so, so strange to just go, I'm gay because it's such a part of you. And you're like, that's like saying, I have kidneys. Like it's so kind of weird. But it's taking ownership saying it out loud, isn't it? Yeah. It's promising yourself you're going to deal with it. Yeah, and I've said it before, before you know, on stage and stuff, but at this point there were no, there was no real role modelling. This is like 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. There was no kind of like, hey, it's great to be gay. There was, it was brilliant. We had Graham Norton, but also we had um, films that were shown on Channel 4, which always ended in people dying or being queer bashed. Or, and they, they were really quite like gritty films. Mm. Um, and you couldn't really watch them unless you watched them like upstairs with the sound down with one sort of eye over your shoulder to make sure your mum and dad didn't walk in. I think we might have had Queer as Folk at that point. But again, it would be like lambasted in the Daily Mail, which my mum and dad bought and stuff. So mm. it was all very sort of negative. So everything felt negative. There was nothing like celebratory about coming out. But I knew I wanted to tell him because I loved him so much. And I told him and he went, oh, um, thank you. And he was from like a really liberal oh. family in Devon. And he was like, oh, thank you for telling me. That's really powerful. And he said, I'm not gay. 
but um, which was like, oh God, um, <laughs> <laughs> devastating. But um, I'm really glad you told me and that can't have been an easy thing to do. And then anyway, it wasn't mentioned again. And then I think we had another week of the National Youth Theatre course and I went in on the, on the Monday and I, we'd been talking about, is it Simon Armitage, the poet? He'd been talking about, he's got a new book and I bought him the book and I said, thank you for listening. Oh. I sort of felt like I owed him something. Like, as in like, I need to pay you for that counselling session. Um, when in truth, I just wanted to buy him a gift because I loved him. Of course. Um, and then he went back to Exeter and then I didn't see him again. But then we sometimes write letters to each other, which was very exciting. Again, very old fashioned. You know, I'm... Are you in touch at all with him now? Um, and then he got back in touch a couple of years ago. And I think he's got a kid now and he's married. And it was really, it was really nice. And it was, yeah, it was nice to speak to him. But also what a lovely person to have such a crush on that he responded with such kindness. Yes, I think, well, he came from a much more liberal family. I think his uncle maybe was gay or right. you know, he had experience of it, which we just, I just didn't have, you know, just didn't have anyone like that around me. It was like, there were literally no gay people in Bromley. I mean, there were, but there were no, to my <laughs> knowledge, they might be in London, but they lived in flats or they might be in Manchester where they had like open brickwork in their flats and, you know, neon signs and stuff. But um, I'm doing it. I'm really doing it. Um, but but they certainly weren't in Bromley. They weren't in Bromley. And it felt so, everything about it felt so frightening. And, you know, when you watch films and stuff now, I'm always, you've heard me go on about it, like, films like it's always like well they take one step and then they tell someone they're gay and then that person says oh I'm gay too let's be boyfriends I'm like it wasn't like that it wasn't like that for me <laughs> so how long after telling Simon were you telling everyone because you were doing stand-up without coming out for quite a long time weren't you <laughs> yeah yeah so I you think... won like a massive national prize for new stand-ups called So You Think You're Funny when you were 22 which is really really impressive and very very young and you you weren't sort of out on stage at that point were you or, no. or out at all no I mean so I told my best friend from school Brie she was amazing I told her at a tube station uh, when we'd been out in Old Street I think trying to find because we knew that was a cool place to go but we couldn't find anywhere that cool to go to um, oh, I, I remember like, oh, that so clearly hearing oh, really? that somewhere was cool <laughs> travelling there and then being like I can't f I can't find this coolness <laughs> it's around here somewhere I know it's, it's somewhere, somewhere. There's a bar around here where you can get drinks out of teacups. But I, no one has told me the bar, so now I'm just in an area. It's always like, it's always hidden. Where is everything? Where is yeah. life? Where is life? You know, and there was always, that was kind of, that was a bit, you know, felt a bit like the whole coming out thing. I was just sort of stuck in this, like, I'm out, but I don't know how to take any action about it. I'm stuck mm. in this stasis. And so you're at Old Street with Brie. I told her, she was like, oh, I've, I think I've known, but I'm so proud of you. And she was amazing. She's a very, she's a very exuberant, brilliant person. And she's still mm. um, my, well, she's my oldest friend, but she's um, somebody who, who just is, has always been fabulous. And, and, and we really connected as teenagers at school because we, I don't know, we both were outsiders and she was so exuberant. So she was, she was perfect about it. She wanted to help it. I think I've always been with the stabilizers on, you know, I've always mm -hmm. kind of at this point, I didn't wasn't ready to take the stabilizers off. And I think I'm still a lot like that now. But she was like, you know, just go out, go there or meet this guy. And sometimes I'd meet like friends of hers that, that she was at drama school with. And, and they'd be like, she'd be like, you should meet them. They'd be great. And they would not fancy me one bit because I'd be like, hello, I like Noel Coward. And I, um, I am slightly scared of life. Uh, do you like guys like that? Um, <laughs> and they were like, absolutely not. Because you still felt like an outsider. Yeah, within... even with the gays. <laughs> yeah. Why well, can't just be normal? Oh, and I think 
also, <laughs> also, I was very gaunt, thin, losing my hair. So yeah, no, I won't. I won't have you be that nasty about yourself. But I think that it's. I think that a lot of listeners will really connect to the fact that you know, sometimes coming out for some of us, you sort of assume that this world is waiting for you, and it actually takes you quite a bit longer to find it and to find your people. And that's also absolutely fine. <laughs> that's. Yeah, that's still your journey, and that's still as special as someone that goes out Absolutely. to GAY the first night they come out and kiss the most attractive person in there. Absolutely, I mean, I think that's so. For me, that's so. That feels so important to say because it is a journey, and the films and the TV shows do represent a version of that, and that's really great. But actually, I think they they oversimplify it a lot. In my experience, I remember going to my first Pride on my own and it wasn't very friendly. People weren't like, hey, you see me on your own. Do you want to come and walk with us? Hey, who are you? This is nice. Da, da, da. Like it wasn't. And it was sort but of that's the time. something that you as an adult have become so good at because if we're in a gay bar and like nowadays you're very recognisable and um, people are always delighted when you are in a bar or with a group of people and you're very, very good at making people feel very, very comfortable. And making them feel included. Oh, that's a nice thing to say. Well, I, I suppose you kind of see yourself, don't you, in those? Mm. There are mirrors around the bar, but there's also mirrors of yourself. And, Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's the thing, Tom. You're very profound as well. That's what we haven't mentioned very, so far. Very dramatic. So do you remember the first time that you sort of addressed your sexuality on stage in front of an audience? A friend of mine said, none of us are here for a long time. We're here for a good time. And I suddenly went, yeah, I'm not going to waste my time here worrying about what other people think I'm going to do what I want to do one of the few times I've thought that and I just come I didn't go guys gather around I just went oh I fancy him oh let's do that and then there was a sort of like a sort of ruffle in the in the office and then they were like oh do you fancy him oh that's interesting and it was suddenly like it was sort of seamless but it was it was there and it was normal and it was normal and they were great friends and um sorry I suddenly feel a bit tearful but I think it's because when you Certainly because we sort of take the story of you chronologically, often people will have a moment where they go, oh, and then I realised that I was normal and that I was worthy of friendship. And yeah, it's very... Um... All of these these things that I'd been carrying with me were relieved somewhat when I got this thing off my chest. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and I think there's something about um, kindness that feels very um, uh, poignant because... Yeah, my friend Ruth, who you know, yeah. who, who sort of lives across the way from me, I came out to her. We were going to drama school. We were walking together. We were about to move in together the following term. And um, I said to her, before I move in with you, there's something I have to tell you. And she was like, uh, she's not. She's from Nottinghamshire. Okay, what, 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 what's wrong? Uh -huh. What's wrong? And so I started telling her and, um, I, and I couldn't get it out. I couldn't get it out, but I sort of, oh, yeah. eventually I just went, oh, I, 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 I think that I know that I'm gay. And I have such a clear memory of her putting her school bags down. We always had so much to carry to drama school, putting her school bags down. And I remember the shoes that she was wearing because I was sort of looking at my feet so much. Oh, yeah, she was wearing I a pair of it, coral yeah. Ugg boots. Oh, wow. And she put, I know, what a look. And she put her bags down and she gave me such a big cuddle. And then I said to her, do you still want to live with me? Oh, wow. And she was yeah. like, of course I do. And, you know, she's still one of my best friends now. But when I think about, mm. you know, the 19-year-old or 20-year-old version of me that was that had worried about how I was going to tell this new friend that I really liked and that I really wanted to become, like, a really good friend of mine for life. And I felt like there was a, a genuine chance of, of not 
she'd never made me think that she would not be okay with my sexuality but because of the things that I told myself in my head because yeah, of yeah. the fear of homophobia I thought this might be something that puts this yeah. person off of me I know exactly what you mean that kindness and normalizing of this thing that you've wrestled with for so long and and that release I think of or the mm. relief of that pain which is um the the fear that you hear these stories about you know, families who turn their back on their kids and you don't know that. You don't know how they're going to behave. You don't know how people are going to behave towards you and they might treat you differently or throw you out of their friendship or of their of your living arrangement, mm. anything. And, and, and that's, to internalise that is very, um, is, is very upsetting, I think. And that release, I think, is... is it's very heavy to carry around. Very heavy, yeah. Like you say, the heavy bags we take to drama school. Um, Absolutely. And um, it meant that I could talk about people I fancy. But I still, to be honest, I still crushed on straight guys and I didn't get the message. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of like, you know, if you sort of move in kind of the performing arts or whatever, uh, everybody's gay, right? And I was like, well, typical of me. I've, <laughs> I've found the straightest <laughs> musical theatre loving guys. And I think, yeah, they were, they literally were. That was exactly what they were like. Um, they'd be like, he can tap dance. He must be gay. No, no, he's one of the straight yeah, ones. Oh my God. Why do you think? No, actually he's got a girlfriend. Um, so there was that to contend with. And I suppose I didn't, I didn't, you know, I never had this sense of lightness where I could be like, well, I'll just try sleeping with that guy. I'll just try sleeping with that guy. Um, I was just too scared for whatever reason. And I, I hadn't, didn't tell my mum and dad. Um, and I suppose that's the, the thing that feels like really coming out. And, and mm. it, it was really difficult because even though I thought my mum would be okay, I was still scared. And mm. I started doing stand-up. It was, it was starting to go well. Uh, I'd done a few gigs, little gigs. And I really liked the singer Rufus Wainwright, who I still love now. And I loved his album, Want One. And uh, I loved him and, and I got my mum into listening to him and she really liked him. And I bought us tickets to go and see him at Shepherd's Bush Empire. And I was like, I think I need to tell my mum. And so we went to see the concert. We came back and I was like, oh, maybe we should. It was quite a crowded tube. And I was like, oh, maybe we should get off at um, Tottenham Court Road and walk down. And she was like, well, no, why don't we Why don't we just carry on this tube all the way to uh, the station? And then we can just get this train home. I was like, no, I just think it's easier if we just, it's just at this time of night, it's just easier. Just knowing I didn't want to be on a crowded tube train coming out to my mum, mm. which you know, now would be filmed and everyone on the tube train would clap and then it would be a meme forever. But then in 2005, um, it would have just resulted in everybody being really embarrassed and probably angry. And did you, um, had you like made a deal with yourself that you were going to do it that night? So it sort of had to be done. I'd kind of gone, just get it over with. And I'd, yeah. I'd got into this state where I was like, just, just, <laughs> I mean, the, the games we play with ourselves, the games we play with ourselves, mm. I'd learned how to basically suppress feelings until we get, just like, get through this, just get through this. Don't think, don't, and I guess that was what I learned at secondary school. Just get through this. Don't have thoughts. Don't have feelings. Just get through this. I knew I had to, and so that's what I did really. And so mom's like, all right, we'll get off at Tottenham Court Road. Um, we're walking down past the Astoria, which used to be where G-A-Y was. Mom was like mm-hmm. talking about nothing. And I was like, and look, um, there's something I want to tell you. And it went, like really quiet and really tense and she was like yeah what, what what is it and she was I was like I just need you to know that um uh I don't, I don't know how you're gonna respond to this I'm sorry but um I'm gay and um and I it my mum has always I've always we've always had a very close relationship and I've always mm. felt very loved by both my parents but it was hard for her because she mm-hmm. 
I don't I don't mean to analyze my mom. I don't I don't know enough, but I think it was difficult for her. And she said it, she said to me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't it doesn't matter. I love you anyway. I've always known. Um, mm. um but it, I I think it was difficult for her. You know, it wasn't it, it again. It wasn't a film where you know she threw a party or something. She um she said I wouldn't tell your dad if I were you just yet, and she did it out of such love. Yes, of course. And protection of the family unit and um, mm-hmm. everything. But she, my dad was from a different era, really. You know, he was born in 1941, born during the Blitz, you know, different. Um, yeah, d- very different. My mum and dad have actually just come in, so I'll probably have to be a bit quieter in a moment. I mean, <laughs> I hope, that's, hope that's useful for you, for your listeners at home. Anybody feeling the same way? Um, I, I'm sure. I'm sure several, several people are. Well. And um, but it was that was hard, I think, because I was like, I just want, and I was like, well, okay, well, maybe I should move out. And Mum was like, well, why would you move out? That'll just be running away. And I was like, well, mm. what? Do you, so again, I was sort of stuck in this impossible situation, and it wasn't anybody's fault. It was the it's the intergenerational stuff that I think we sometimes forget in our narrative that it, it was coming to play there. And so I didn't tell him. We had a long chat, Mum and I, and she said, I love you, whatever. Don't worry, don't worry about that. You can always talk to me. And then I didn't tell my dad until I was twenty four. Yeah, just sat on it, really, in this kind of like, is it okay? Is it not okay? Am I okay? Am I not okay? And then I told him on the phone and um, and he cried because I think he was sad at the fact that I'd been sad for all that time, you know? Um, yeah. And he talked about George Michael on Parkinson when George Michael had gone on and talked about that horrible time when he was tricked by that police yes. guy. Yes. And he really owned it. George Michael was such a brilliant guy. Yeah, he was amazing, wasn't he? And um, he really owned it. And that was a big turning point, I think, for a lot of people who didn't... Yes, know, I Because he so humanised the whole experience. And now you, you know, now you're someone that is sort of out publicly and you, you know, talk about being gay on stage, you talk about your feelings, you talk about breakups, you know, like anybody would talk about sort of their own life. Was there a journey to get to that stage where you could be that open on stage yeah I wasn't out on stage I wasn't out when I was on stage like to my parents and they'd come and see gigs and I remember the combo once went I think that guy's gay I'm like oh god oh um, god I realized that for me I liked being this kind of confusing kind of just showing how actually I was in a state of being a bit like I'm this but I'm that but I don't know if I'm that and I don't know if I'm this I kind of like that being on stage but then what I realized with stand-up is particularly with kind of um, some of the rougher places, they they want you to be something, be quickly be something mm, and tell us what yes, it is. absolutely. Because we feel insecure if you feel insecure. We need to feel secure with you. So, And I've also had points in the past where I feel like if I don't reference that I'm gay, the audience are thinking, does she know? Yeah. <laughs> does she know yeah. she's gay? We should tell her that she's gay. Well, I, I guess it's that, I guess it's that thing. And I, I started to go, actually, I'm going to talk about it. And I used to talk about it later in my set as like, oh, by the way. But then I was like, no, I should talk about this now because it's part of me. And I suppose it was a response to all that time of being told, no, don't talk about it. No, it's not okay. Wait before you speak. Make sure they like you before. Make sure, yes. You yeah, I remember thinking that and, and I get, in my set. And I get people kind of tweeting me and going, why do you always talk about being gay all the time? It's like, you're only joke. It's not really funny. We don't care if you're gay. And I'm like, I'm not doing it because it's just because I'm talking about myself. And also, if you don't care, don't tweet. You definitely do care. Yeah. If you're bothering yeah. to take the time to tweet at someone, that it's such a, a different extra thing now of dealing with that 
online stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where sort of everyone's a critic. But it doesn't, it did hurt me at first. And then I thought, you know, it doesn't hurt as much as keeping it inside. Absolutely. Because I think, and that's the ownership of it. And I suppose in some way, I like to think I'm sort of saying it to my younger self that it's okay. Which is, Absolutely. you know, it's not fair to, you know, use my time on stage as therapy for myself. I don't want to ever do that. It's not fair on an audience. I think if you're being funny enough, you can get away with it. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's true. <laughs> um, so Did you I... find there was homophobia in sort of comedy clubs as you were coming up through the clubs? Yeah. yeah I remember being on stage at Jonglers in Birmingham and... Um, such, I made myself do those clubs. They were sort of the roughest ones. They're always had, full of stag, stag parties and hen parties. And I made myself do them. I was doing my little set and I was trying to keep the attention of the crowd. And I went, does anybody here uh, play rugby uh, or something? I was talking about rugby at this point. Uh, and somebody went, oh, shut up, you puff. And everybody around him clapped. And I went, oh, you know what? You know what? I, actually, I, I didn't say this, but I was like, I need to get off stage. I can't, like, I've lost this room. There's no point in me prolonging it. It's not yeah. there on their evening. They clearly want something else that I'm not. I can't do it. And so I left the stage. And um, I got a phone call on Monday from the booker and uh, she said, I'm so sorry you had that experience on Saturday. And I was like, oh, maybe the world isn't such a bad place because I got out. I left the club. I was supposed to be staying in the hotel that night. I just left the hotel. I went to the station. I got the last train from Birmingham back to London. Uh, I bought a bottle of champagne, actually, um, to drink on the train. And um, and then I, I got out of there and I got a phone call and, and she said, um, I'm so sorry you had that experience. And I was like, oh, maybe the world isn't such a bad place. And she went... Um, because you left the stage before the end of your time, we can only pay you half the money. And um, I just thought, oh. There was no, I'm so sorry that that happened, you know, in under our watch. It was my fault for not being able to deal with it. And maybe it was. I don't know. No, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't. And she sort of said, oh, maybe I can try and get you the rest of the money through some expenses or something. But um, yeah, that's the rule. Sorry if you leave the stage. And I was like fuck this um and um, and I thought I don't want to ever play that sort of room again and I thought actually I could learn my dad was like you just gotta learn some heckle put downs but it's one thing isn't it being like told you're not funny because you're like well comedy's an opinion yeah when people are actually shouting things out that sort of rock the whole existence of who you are yeah there's not really a quippy put down um I'm not yeah 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 I think you just learn to like, I get it. You hate me. I hated myself for years. <laughs> yeah, I still carry Sorry. that with me. Don't worry. I do. Yeah. Don't worry. Like, Yeah. And, and so I thought on one of the few times I've tried to be a bit more positive to myself, I um, I thought on, I won't do those rooms and I won't learn to play them because I'll be like, what sort of version of myself will I be creating? You know, what kind of, I don't want to do a set where I have to be like, oh, yeah, I'm stupid. Yeah, stupid me. Yeah. And be their version of gay that they find acceptable. Yeah. So then I sort of went on a bit of a journey for a few years of trying to find out how I can be exuberant on stage and unapologetic on stage. But isn't that interesting? Because that was the moment when you began to have success. I mean, maybe, yeah. Don't you think? Like that, because I I remember that happening to you in that club. I remember speaking to you, I think on the train home or certainly the next day. And it was a couple of years after that, that we were up at the Fringe Mm. and you had this sort of sellout run where no one could get a ticket, reviews were fantastic, your poster was just covered in stars. And it's interesting, isn't it? That moment where you went, do you know what, I'm not being, I'm not going to be that that version of myself that they want me to be. I'm going to do the funny stuff from where I want to be. Wow. That everyone went, we love this. But it was hard to um, to get to that point because people, you know, like you've always been so generous to me and so kind, such a great friend. Um, but, you, you know, you would say, you would say, do that and do more of that and I think it was the hurdle to overcome was that voice that was in that club and was in that school mm-hmm. or was in that 
film or was in that whatever and um it, it was sort of overcoming that and that, that to me is what stand-up is is it's someone standing on stage and going i know it's easy to go you're an idiot you're stupid yeah i hate you but you stand on the stage and you go i'm here and i don't care that you might think this or that and you go i'm doing this for me and sometimes that's why I talk quite loudly on stage. People are like, why does he speak so loud, the shouty man? It's like, because I'm basically trying to shut up those voices in my head and I'm going, I'm here. I'm okay. Like, I'm going to have fun. You're going to have fun because I'm going to have fun. And that was the biggest, for me, that was the biggest journey because I think so much of that, I don't know if this is something that other people experience, but so much of that kind of crushed love and crushed personality in my sort of younger years, it quickly turns it crystallizes into self-loathing. And that felt very, very big in myself, very big in my mind. And I still carry that now, the sense of just vile, aggressive self-loathing and overcoming that and going, you can be on a stage and talk about yourself. I hope at its best is when, is, is when stand-up is at its best because it makes other people in the audience go, oh, I didn't, I didn't know. But I think like your career, you know, how your career is going now, you're constantly on the TV or, you know, you, you sell out your tours, you get fantastic reviews, you sold out the Palladium when you were recording your special, which then went on TV. Isn't it an indication to the fact that you can probably quiet those voices in your head now because all of those people are paying money to come and listen to what you have to say? You, well, I would... I, I, in the film, I go, yeah, but in the, <laughs> I mean, how narcissistic I've already created a film of my life. Um, the, who's playing you in it? Me. <laughs> uh, I'm playing all the characters. In fact. <laughs> um, I would like to say absolutely. Yes. But to be honest, it's, it's part of the journey, I think. And I think that's the thing is that sometimes coming out is one step, but for, for me at least, and I, I, I say this hopefully to reassure anybody else who might be feeling like this, it's an ongoing journey and you don't necessarily get to just switch off those voices that were in your past and those experiences, but you learn to process them and deal with and approach them in a new way that it doesn't have to affect you or it doesn't have to be aggressive towards you. You're a person separate to that. And, and that, but that I found has taken me time, but I think for other people, maybe it, it doesn't take as much time, but I, I think it's it's maybe worth being aware that it's a, it's an ongoing process, and the more we realise we're not here for it for a long time, we're here for a good time, and the more we realise that actually there are good people in the world, and we are one of them, uh, then we are closer to that that self that is truly accepting of ourselves. I think that you you don't realise how much of an inspiration you are to so many sort of not just LGBT people, but you know people from you know. You talking so openly about yourself. I think it's. Um, I'm sure I put I plenty of really people wonderful. off, to be honest. I mean, geez. <laughs> now, so I'm going to ask you for the final question in, in, in the podcast, which is the question that I asked everybody at the end, which is um, if you could pick up a phone and telephone, say, 12 year old Tom going to Cooper's school in Chislehurst, maybe just getting in to fabulous suits from the Victorian era, maybe carrying a briefcase to school. What would you tell him? What advice would you give him? Uh, I think I'd say, stop worrying. Don't worry about anything. None of it matters. I, I wish I could learn that now, but I wish I'd just gone, mess around, mess up a few exams, trust yourself, you know, just trust yourself and, and you will be okay. You're, you're allowed to make mistakes and you're allowed to be yourself and have fun and be vulnerable because so I just never thought I could show any kind of vulnerability or um yeah I wish I wish I could stop worrying about everything 
Uh, Tom, that's uh, the end of the conversation. That was so brilliant, Tom. Oh, I don't know. I just talk about myself. Thank you so much for being so um, open and honest. The wonderful Tom Allen. Thank you so much for listening to the show. As ever, I would love you to rate and review on iTunes or to tweet, tell your friends, tell your mum, tell anyone that you think will enjoy it. As ever, if you'd like to get in touch with me, the email address is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Until next week, I hope you're doing well and I'll chat to you then. <laughs>